was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? I like that word, hotly. (laughs) Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. The word of the Lord. So first off, a little bit of recap. So Jacob, at his mother's, Rachel's insistence, deceived Isaac and stole Esau's birthright. Jacob's mother then manipulates Isaac into sending Jacob away to her brother Laban's family that he may take a wife and also escape the wrath of Esau. Upon arrival, Jacob meets Rachel, Laban's daughter, and ingratiates himself with Laban that he might ask for Rachel to be his wife. At the end of seven years, Laban pulls a very classic Mr. Krabs move and sends Leah into the tent instead of Rachel. After Jacob finds out, he goes to Laban and he's like, Bro. And Laban responds. <laughs> then Laban responds, okay, okay, 
I'll give you Rachel too <laughs> for seven more years. <laughs> when these years are up, Jacob asks Laban to send him back to his father's house with the wages that he's earned, namely his now fairly extensive family. Laban, however, has recognized that having Jacob around has been nothing but good for him. So he convinces Jacob to stay under the pretext of gaining livestock for, of his own to continue providing for his family. During this time, God provides for Jacob, making it so that all the sheep and goats born will be counted as Jacob's wages. At this point, Laban's sons see that what would be their inheritance is slowly being sucked away. Jacob then sees that Laban is no longer quite as keen to keep him around. In the midst of Jacob's fear and anxiety about Laban, God comes to Jacob and tells him that he has seen the injustice of Laban and that Jacob should now go back to the land of his birth. After this, Jacob decides to R-U-N-N-O-F-T without telling Laban anything. That's a, that's a pretty deep quote for anybody who's in the know. He gets his wives together and tells them his plan to leave. They reply, we should do it. That man obviously does not care about us. And then Rachel stole Laban's idols and they got out of Dodge. So tonight, we pick up the story three days after Jacob and them have left. In the first few verses, Laban discovers Jacob's deception and gets after him. He catches up in Gilead, but before the two have it out, God chimes in and tells Laban to say nothing, either good or bad, to Jacob. In verse 25, Laban camps out in the same place as Jacob, and they finally talk. Laban comes in, landed on thick. He's like, hey, nephew, where did you go, man? You took my daughters and ran off without letting me even, like, throw you a party or anything. Like, I didn't even get to say goodbye to my grandkids. Come on. You can practically see the crocodile tears hitting the page as you read this. Laban is pulling the classic, just guilt your family into doing what you want despite the years of mistreatment and abuse you put up with them. Card here. <laughs> Laban concludes his guilt fest by remembering that God told him not to say anything to Jacob. <laughs> But he doesn't want to just leave after coming all this way. So Laban latches on to the one thing he feels like he can accurately pin on Jacob. In verse 30 through 32, Laban reproaches Jacob for stealing his household idols. And Jacob claims that he did no such thing. Jacob says that he left for fear that Laban would take his daughters back from him, but that he did not steal Laban's idols. He then offers the life up of anyone here there who did. So Laban, taking him up on this offer, proceeds to search all through Jacob's camp. He searches almost everywhere, but when he finds nothing, Jacob then gets angry with him. Very interesting. In his anger, Jacob begins to outline all that he's put up with while staying with Laban, and states that if it was not for the God of Abraham and the God of his father Isaac, then he would have lost even more at the hands of Laban. All right, so what do we find here? I think... What I want to do is actually come to Jacob's defense a little bit. Well, I know, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is, in fact, a turd and a snake and a liar. And at, at least by today's standards, kind of a weirdo. But can we really blame him? Yes. Yeah, we can, we can blame him a lot because whatever happened to make him into this kind of person, I mean, he's still the one responsible for his actions. So, you know, what are you going to do? But I think it's also very important for us to know and understand exactly what it was that helped form Jacob into the kind of person he is. Oh, whoops. 
So a couple of weeks ago, Shalise touched on the importance of keeping an eye on familial sin. Mm-hmm. It can creep up on you and make you behave in unexpected ways. Growing up, we can't help but be formed by the way our family members behave. And very often those behaviors are internalized, just waiting for the right set of circumstances to begin rearing their ugly heads. Taking a look at Jacob's parents, it's not too surprising to find that deception is Jacob's primary method of interacting with the world. If his dad isn't lying about his wife being his sister, as we saw during their sojourn in the kingdom of the Philistines, then his mom is actively scheming to usurp her other son's birthright and manipulating her husband into sending Jacob off to escape the fallout. And that's just what we know about. God only knows what other wounds this family has inflicted on each other. So by the time Jacob is sent off on his own for the first time, fear, mistrust, and deception are some of the well-worn tools that he carries along with him. Jacob is inhabiting the world in the only way he knows how, ways that thus far he has only seen to be wildly effective. Everything has worked. Everyone has gotten exactly what they wanted from all the lies, the deception, and the whatnot. So it's imaginable to me that Jacob is not operating with any kind of moral judgment in mind. He is simply surviving, using the best means he knows. And thus is born the snake we all know and love. However, I think in this passage that we have today, we are seeing the beginnings of some changes in Jacob. I feel like this is evidenced most maybe in verse 31. After being confronted by Laban about his deception, Jacob does something that to me seems like a little out of character for him. He just straightforwardly tells the truth. No hemming and hawing, no excuses or made up stories. He just admits that he was scared. It comes off almost like a confession. As though Jacob knew that that wasn't the right way to handle things, but decided to do it anyway and risk what would happen after. This is refreshing to me. It feels like Jacob has given up some of his usual tactics and instead decides to just be barefaced. Jacob tells Laban what he was thinking and feeling in that moment. And then, as though inspired by the feeling of being honest, he digs in, not only asserting his own innocence, but pronouncing death on any guilty party found with him. He's so outraged at the accusation and so certain of his entire family's innocence that he's willing to wager anything. This is a different Jacob than we're used to. This, this Jacob's kind of on something. He's moving a little different. But the changes don't stop there. After Laban has searched the camp and come up with nothing, we see yet more of this new side of Jacob. Since his pride doesn't take kindly to his given word being challenged, Jacob is indignant and begins to defend himself by outlining all the different injustices he's put up with from Laban over the past 20 years. He sounds here something like that kid who would lie all the time, just all the time, about nothing. And then he gets mad the one time he tells the truth because nobody believes him after that. (laughs) Sort of a pseudo, the boy who cried wolf. It's hypocritical, very reminiscent of that one Spider-Man meme where they're just pointing at each other. Like, you, you, no, what's you? But still, I think this is indicative of the changes being wrought in Jacob. He's saying that what Laban did to him is bad. He's making a moral judgment. This is an instance of Jacob discerning right from wrong. So what's going on here? Why is Jacob behaving so differently than the ways we've known him to thus far? My man is out here telling the truth. 
He's getting angry at injustices. He is incensed over his honesty being challenged. I think what's going on here is that God has been working in Jacob's life, transforming him into a different person. So over the past 20 years, Jacob has learned what it's like to be on the receiving end of deception and injustice. Likewise, he has learned that the God who has been providing for him all these years is one who seeks to correct injustices. Jacob knows that it was God who provided him with flocks when Laban sought to use him to increase his own. Out of Jacob's own mouth, he confessed, God did not allow him to hurt me. He says that it was, it was God who was protecting me and doing these things that kept me all these years. Jacob may even have recognized that some of his own misfortune may have been a result of his own attempts at deception. <clears throat> Beyond this, I think what has had the most significant effect on Jacob are his conversations with God. God introduces himself to Jacob in a dream where he promises Jacob that he will give him this land, that he will be with him and keep him and his descendants and will not leave him until this comes to pass. Jacob trusts what God has told him and continues on his way. The next time we see them speaking is when God tells Jacob to leave Haran and return to the land of his father. Two very important things happen in the midst of those conversations. And they help us to show how Jacob has begun to be transformed. The first is that when God calls to Jacob in his dream, or maybe out of his dream, I can't remember at the moment. Anyway, Jacob responds, here I am. Here I am. These words are heavy. They're filled with history that has come before and history that is yet to come. When God calls Abram, he responds, here I am. When God calls to Moses via the burning bush, Moses responds, here I am. When God calls Samuel, he likewise responds, here I am. When the Lord speaks to Isaiah, asking who will speak on his behalf, Isaiah responds, here I am. When God speaks to Ananias before he lays hands on Paul to grant him his sight, Ananias responds, here I am, Lord. Now there are probably any number of lenses through which we can interpret the meaning of these here I am's. But <clears throat> I think the best one, and one that's very personal to me, is King David's. In 2 Samuel, this little excerpt is, should be on the back side of your paper if you've got it. So in 2 Samuel, King David and his whole crew are fleeing Jerusalem because there's been a coup and he fears for his life. When one of the Levites attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant, when one of the Levites attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them, David replies, return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The first time I read this very casually, reading through 2 Samuel for some reason, I like started, I just like started crying immediately. I was like, I don't know what this is, but something serious is happening right now. Anyway, this carries with it. The same sort of energy as Mary's response when she is told that she will bear the Son of God. Let it be done to me according to your word. By responding in this way, these two, and by association, all the rest of these figures, 
are giving themselves over entirely to God. They are saying, as David does, take my life and do with it whatever you want. All their plans, their hopes, worries, and fears are collected together and given over to God in that simple, here I am. That's what happened in that dream Jacob had. It was the dreamer. He checked the little box next to the, I have read the, and agreed to the terms and conditions, <laughs> knowing full well he didn't read a line of it. This interpretation is further evidenced, I think, by what happens immediately after each of these here I am statements. And sets us up for the second indication that Jacob is undergoing some serious change here. So in each one of those instances, the person responding to God, each of those instances being where someone said, here I am, in response to the Lord. The persons proceed to do exactly what God told them to do. Abraham is about two seconds away from actually killing his son before God stops him. Moses does all the things and successfully removes Israel from Egypt. Samuel and Isaiah prophesy a lot. Ananias lays hands on Saul, despite the fact that he is responsible for the death of who knows how many of his fellow Christians. That's the one that really gets me. That's some, that's some deep trust in God to be like, you want me to go to the, like, the murderer, th- that, the one, and pray for him? All right, I'm yours, you know? And thus, I think, is Jacob further changed by availing himself to God and obeying his commands. As soon as God tells Jacob, he only gives him two things, but as soon as he says to do this thing, Jacob's like, okay, I got it. I can do that. Which may seem pretty easy to us. Like, yeah, keep going where you were going. All right, you don't like it here, go back. But I don't know, 20 years is a long time to spend in a place to just be like, all right, I'm going to pack up and leave because someone told me to. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of roots. His family has been born here and spread out in all kinds of different ways. And yet, Jacob is still willing to pack up and go at a word from God. Despite the change that God is working in Jacob, though, we see later in the story that he has largely retained many, many of his old habits. When encountering Esau again for the first time, Jacob very dubiously places so many of his wives and his children in front of him so that Esau sees them first, like in a row, before they finally get to Jacob and they can talk. He then, immediately afterwards, lies, saying that he's going to follow after Esau and that his, his, his flock and his children are too tired to continue right now. But then he just goes in a completely different direction. He's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. And still later, when Jacob's daughter Dinah is assaulted and his sons come to her defense, Jacob is upset with them for, quote unquote, tarnishing his reputation among these people. It's not a good look. (laughs) So you might, you know, be asking yourself, if Jacob is this changed man, if he's been transformed by God in all these kinds of ways, why is he still pulling these same stunts? I think that one of the the reason that Jacob is still, you know, acting up, I think that like all the rest of us, Jacob is just a sinner. He learned well from his parents to do what they did, both the good and the bad. And who of us has not caught ourselves doing something we swore we'd never imitate from our parents in our relationships, friendships, and maybe even your acquaintanceships 
If any of you ever get married, you'll definitely see it happening there. And especially once you have kids, or so I'm told. (laughs) I think this also partly explains why Rachel stole the household idols. I don't think she really had a choice. There was nothing else that she could have done. The only way she could have left those idols behind is if she somehow radically changed as a person in the time between preparation and departure from Haran. She took those idols because they represented an integral part of who she was at the time, a sinner and an idolater. She took them because in her mind they were hers. They belonged to her. Maybe they were in Laban's household, but she was in that household too, and she learned to worship these idols and live her life by them. So maybe she could no more have left them behind than just leaving behind her arm or her leg. Anyway, right, Rachel, as a sinner and an idolater. Just like who else? That's right, all the rest of us. And if Rachel couldn't resist, then I don't think that we really stand a snowball's chance. You know? Did any of our parents or guardians send us out into the world without first explaining that first and foremost, you need to be making six figures and own as much property as humanly possible? You need to get married right now and have so many kids. Like, why haven't you done this already? Did any of us grow up in a world that wasn't saturated with unrealistic beauty standards, a premium on social status, a never-ending and constant barrage of nonstop distraction? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Be Real, Snapchat, kind of still, I think. With so much stuff vying for any and everyone's attention. It's honestly a miracle that places like the Wesley still exist, let alone that there are any people in them. If that's the case, then what hope do we really have? The outlook is pretty bleak for us to, you know, surmount the, the literal world of sin in front of us. I was formed during a time at the Wesley where it was almost a point of pride to be poor. If nothing else, we had the camel through a needle part of the Bible down pat. Despite my rigorous formation, though, I still find myself needing to repent of the sin of greed. Like, just on a Thursday, I'm liable to get so caught up in trying, in trying to be a, a husband that provides enough for his family that I'll fail to recognize that God has already provided more than enough. And I'll instead continue trying as hard as possible, as hard as I possibly can to do I don't even know what. Like, own a corporation or something. I don't even want that. Actually, probably nobody should, but that's the way idolatry works. It slips in and catches hold of you, twisting your desires and your intentions in unexpected ways. Does this mean then that our position is hopeless, that we may as well throw in the towel now and simply do as the pagans do? May it never be. As Christians, we are called to have hope, and the best hope we have of combating sin is to be made into beings who do not. This can happen for us in the same way we see it starting to happen to Jacob, through prayer. (laughs) Jacob talks to God and listens and responds to what he says. That's the essence of any good prayer. Just talk. Just listen. Respond to God. It's an incredibly powerful tool, prayer. Not because God makes real changes in the world in response, which he definitely does do that. 
but because it has the power to affect radical change within us. We need to be praying. We need to be asking God for miracles, not so that we can have what we want, but because doing so teaches us to believe in God's power. It's easy to feel like we shouldn't pray for the little things we want in our lives, because surely God has bigger things to attend to, right? But if you can pray to God for help with all the seemingly insignificant things going on in your life, that doesn't mean that you're being a bother or being annoying or that God is like this guy again for like trying to get the rug straight or something. I don't know. (laughs) I think that what it does is betray your understanding that nothing big or small can ever happen in your life without God. So despite how we feel about him, it may be the case that Jacob has a leg up on us when it comes to progressing in faith. We call him a lot of names, and yeah, maybe he's earned them. But if we're honest, like he's learning to be, couldn't we levy those same accusations at ourselves? At least Jacob is willing. At least Jacob is obedient to God. At least when God calls him, he answers. How many of us, when called into God's service, instead do whatever we want and ignore the obvious path that he's laid before us? How many of us have really prayed for our enemies and done good to those who hurt us? How many of us have never borne any anger towards our brothers or sisters? Who of us has never looked on another with lust in our hearts? Who has cared for the sick, given clothes to the naked, or visited those in prison? Who has gone out to all nations preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Not me. I'm pretty acutely aware of how often I fail to do all of those things. (laughs) I can't condemn Jacob because I'm no better than him. And that's a hopeful thing. Because if Jacob can open himself up to the completion of the good work God has begun in him, then so can I. If Jacob can be transformed through the power of prayer, then so can I. If Jacob can abandon himself wholly into God's will and simply obey, then maybe I can too.